Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 225 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for another interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. I know some of you may be wondering about the conclusion of our two-part audio essay on the history of the margarita, so before we jump in, just wanted to reassure you it's still coming, but due to some scheduling conflicts, we needed to shuffle a few things around. Rest assured, though, we'll round out that topic in all likelihood in our very next episode. This time around, however, we dip into the world of wine to discuss a category that's as new and exciting as it is ancient. That category is none other than orange wine, and our guest this episode, wine author Simon Wolf, has traveled and tasted extensively within the diverse community of orange wine producers. He's also written an excellent book on the topic called Amber Revolution, How the World Learned to Love Orange Wine, and his journey researching and writing this text will frame our discussion about what many believe is today's most exciting style of wine. But before we start stomping grapes and going out of our way for a little extra skin contact, let's take a quick sidebar so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Espresso Martini, which seems like a strange choice for an interview about orange wine. But just like orange wine isn't made from oranges, the Espresso Martini doesn't have anything to do with a real martini. To make this cocktail, you'll need one and a half ounce or about 50 mLs vodka, one ounce or 30 mLs of strong, freshly pulled espresso, three quarters of an ounce or about 20 mLs of coffee liqueur, and a quarter ounce or about seven and a half mLs of simple syrup. Combine these ingredients in a cocktail shaker with ice, give them a good hard shake, then strain into a stemmed cocktail glass, preferably the classic V-shaped martini glass, Garnish with three espresso or coffee beans and enjoy. Not only does it make a prominent appearance in this episode's lightning round, but like our guest Simon, the espresso martini originated in the UK. The most reputable Genesis story seems to stem from a famous bartender named Dick Bradsill, who was working at a popular London venue called Fred's Club in the late 1980s. Allegedly, some unnamed model walked up to him and ordered a drink that would, in her words, quote, wake me up and then fuck me up. With vodka being all the rage at the time, Bradsell grabbed a bottle of the clear, tasteless stuff, combined it with a shot of espresso, a pour of Kahlua, and a little extra sweetener, et voila, an iconic tipple is born. Some of you may be aware that the espresso martini has been enjoying a surge in popularity recently, and although it might seem like a silly social media trend, I'm of the opinion that there's a bit more to it than that. To understand why, let's talk about the look and feel of the espresso martini relative to its ingredients and preparation method. It has that dark, rich, luscious look of a nice espresso combined with, if shaken properly, a nice head of foam. Not egg white foamy, 
kind of more like cafe americano foamy. And this makes sense because the particulate matter from the espresso shot offers something for the other three ingredients to latch onto as the cocktail is aerated and diluted in the shaker. This paves the way for what has become an iconic garnish. Three espresso or coffee beans placed on the foam immediately prior to service. This garnish is actually co-opted from an Italian coffee and spirits tradition where Sambuca, an anise-flavored liqueur, is taken as a shot or sipped following coffee. There are three traditional coffee bean garnishes for a Sambuca shot. One would be seven coffee beans, representing the seven hills of Rome. Another is a single coffee bean, and this garnish style is called con masca, which means with a fly, since a single coffee bean looks like a fly landed in your sambuca. And finally, we have three coffee beans, which represents health, happiness, and prosperity. This three bean garnish is what you see most commonly adorning an espresso martini. But unlike with the sambuca shot, where it's sort of implied that you're going to down the coffee beans with the liquor, the cocktail at least gives you a little bit of optionality when it comes to how you decide to treat them. Like any good garnish, it's technically edible and there if you want it, but there's no rule that says you have to. So now that you know a little bit more about the lore and legend behind one of yesterday's and today's most popular drinks, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this globe-trotting discussion with wine expert and author Simon J. Wolf, some of the topics we discuss include how Simon transitioned from a career in IT to a life traveling, tasting, and writing about wine, and specifically, he describes the visit to northeastern Italy that caused him to fall in love with orange wine in the first place. What makes orange wine different from other traditional red, white, or rosé wines from around the world, both in terms of its production methods and the various flavor profiles it can evoke? Then we go wide and deep on cultural terroir, covering topics as diverse as the convective fermentation properties of Georgian ovoid queveries, to the role of thick skins in Rabala Jala grapes, to the dazzlingly creative experiments and blends made today by orange winemakers from around the world. From a consumer perspective, we give you some tips on how to think about dipping your toes into the orange wine pool, either at your local wine shop or your favorite restaurant, and we cap everything off by giving you a sneak peek at Simon's most recent book project, Foot Trodden, Portugal and the Wines That Time Forgot. This conversation, of course, is a wonderful collection of core samples from Simon's book, Amber Revolution, How the World Learned to Love Orange Wine. As Simon describes it, it's part novel, part memoir, and part resource guide to the best orange winemakers around the world. We'll have links over on the show notes page that will point you to the best place to pick up your copy, but for now, please enjoy this eye-opening conversation with wine expert Simon J. Wolf. Simon, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's kick off this interview as we always do, just by having you introduce yourself briefly and uh, tell us who you are and what you do. Sure. So yeah, my name's Simon J. Wolf. Uh, I'm a writer, author of two books about different kinds of wine, uh, one of which we're going to talk about. Uh, I'm originally British, but I'm based in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. How did you come to be based in Amsterdam, if you don't mind me asking? 
Yeah, I, everybody always asks that. <laughs> it's because um, I, wine wasn't always my main career. So back in the day, I actually had a career in IT and I landed a, a good job here. Um, Amsterdam is kind of the IT capital of Europe at the moment, pretty much. Uh, so that was the initial trigger to move here. But, you know, I got comfortable here like we often do. And yeah, I'm still here after eight years. Yeah. So the wine culture here in the U.S. is obviously centered sort of around Napa Valley. Uh, in Europe, there are, you know, the, the obvious hotspots uh, on the mainland. Um, how did you work your way into wine as someone who started off living in the U.K. and then made your way to Amsterdam, which is, I mean, obviously has access to many of those mainland hotspots, but is is not geographically right next to one of them. Um, how, how did you kind of work your way into the wine space? Yeah, I guess wine, somehow wine always had a fascination for me. And I can remember, I think it was the late 90s, the early 2000s, my, my then girlfriend, I think she kind of despaired at me, really, because she could see that I was so interested in it. And so she packed me off to a, a course about wine. You know, it was just a course at a local wine shop. And I so I studied there for a few evenings, really enjoyed it. And then I thought, you know what, this isn't enough. I want to go deeper. Um, so I just kind of got really into it just as a, a hobby. And then a few years later, I rather randomly started a wine blog um, back in the day when that kind of thing was still cool. We're, we're talking 2011 now. And. I was kind of shocked that I had actual readers. I had people that were actually deriving value from my rather amateur efforts. So I thought, you know what, this, is, this has got legs. And that's really when I started to get the opportunity to travel more widely. So my appreciation of wine really deepened, I think. And uh, yeah, it, it just went from there, really. And it, it, so then gradually it became a part-time gig. You know, I accepted, okay, this is, this is a a side career. And then from being a side career, whoops, became my main career. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds uh, like quite a happy accident. Um, being in the IT space, it doesn't surprise me that the blog was uh, the, the initiating impulse that uh, kind of got you rolling here. Um, since you kind of took us through this story, I'm wondering if there were any flavor experiences, any particular bottles, any of those early trips to visit some of these growing regions that really captivated you? Do you, any, any of those memories that, that really uh, became uh, a well to which you would often return for inspiration? Well, of course, there was one, and uh, we're going to talk about it because the, the, there was the uh, the fabled moment in 2011 when I was in northern northern Italy for a wine bloggers conference. So I couldn't believe my luck that such a thing existed. Uh, so I was bunking off my day job and having fun tasting wine. And then after the the conference, they took us on a trip to the the very far northeast of Italy to a region called Friuli. And uh, I ended up in the cellar of a man named Sandy Skerk, who's a winemaker in uh, Friuli Casso in a tiny little village called Propoto. And he handed me a glass of something and my mind was officially blown. And of course, what he handed me was an orange wine. I didn't even know what to call it back then. Um, I just knew, well, this is something 
of the like I've never tasted before. It's it's a strange color. It's got a strange aroma. It's got a strange flavor. I didn't know if I loved it or hated it. I just knew I had to know more about it. Yes. Those experiences where uh, in the cocktail world, there's a number of them. Uh, uh, very often, someone's first Negroni is one of those <laughs> quasi aversive experiences. Um, favorite of mine, by the way. Of, uh, of course, I mean, so, so many, you know, uh, so many great ingredients in there. You know, obviously, the vermouth is, is is a wine base, and the Campari with so many of those uh, wonderful botanicals, that beautiful bitterness. Um, chartreuse happens to be another one of those uh, flavors and experiences that people never forget. Uh, I always describe my first experience tasting chartreuse as like seeing a color that you never knew existed. Um, so. Uh, it doesn't surprise me that for you, orange wine was that experience and, and certainly amplified by the fact that you were being guided through it by the producer. That's also an incredibly powerful experience that I think having spent the last two years either afraid to or prohibited from uh, visiting places and having these in-person interactions in the beverage space, we tend to forget the sheer power of being guided through a flavor experience by the person who is intimately acquainted with that and very often who is responsible for those flavors existing in in large part. So it doesn't surprise me that that maker's experience in the ba in the cellar of the maker was um, the initiating incident that kicked off your fascination with orange wines, which of course has eventually resulted in your book that we're here to talk about today. So can you just give us uh, an overview of uh, your book and we, we will get to your second book. Yes, we holding up for those of you who are going to be tuning into the video. We've got the book Amber Revolution and you've got this, the wonderful cover art. You, you <laughs> staged your shop perfectly, Simon. Have to do it. Um, so, so yeah, tell us about Amber Revolution and and then we'll kind of back our way into the, uh, you know, what orange wine is and some of the history and culture uh, as, sure. we do, as we go. So, so basically, it, it it did pretty much start with this trip in two thousand and eleven, where I I was tasting wines that were just I felt they were unique. Um, I didn't I didn't have a vocabulary to describe them, but I think more importantly, I could see you know it wasn't just one winemaker. After the first cellar, we went to another cellar and then another, and I thought all these guys are doing this. You know what's going on? This 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 is this is a thing. This is this is culture, this is a, a tradition. And I wanted to know more. So when I got back from that trip, I, I did what any self-respecting writer would do. And I started researching. I thought there must be must be a book about this. So I looked up Friuli, nothing, almost nothing. Um, I looked up orange wine or, you know, macerated white wine. And I, I just couldn't find enough information to go as deep as I wanted to go. I found a, a, a few solitary articles um, luckily enough, uh, uh, Eric Asimov, the, the wine journalist for the New York Times, had written a couple of excellent pieces, but it was pretty Spartan. Um, and I, so I kept on digging away at it and I kept on discovering, I discovered that the Republic of Georgia was a key part of this style of wine as well. So I had all these pieces of a puzzle, but I, I just didn't know how they fitted together. Um, and it was quite frustrating. And it took me, I think it took me three or four years before I realized, well, 
if this book that I really want to read, if these questions that I really want answered about where this style of wine comes from and what's behind it in terms of culture and history, if it doesn't exist, maybe it's going to have to be me that writes it. Yes. Uh, you know, there, there is often that moment. I have experienced that moment with some podcast episodes where, you know, it's, it's, very often a, a subject that's much smaller than something like orange wine, which is a you know multinational, somewhat global phenomenon. But I'm familiar with the impulse of like, well, I'm not satisfied with what's out there. So it looks like it's time to, uh, to dig in. So what to you did that process of digging in entail? How did you begin to put some of those puzzle pieces, as you mentioned, together? Um, basically, it involved travel. It involved traveling to the, the key wine regions. So it involved numerous trips back to Friuli. Um, I'd managed to identify kind of who, who the main protagonists were. But of course, more winemakers, more protagonists came out of the woodwork as I, as I deepened my research. So it was really about just going and knocking on doors and talking to people and really actually getting quite close to some of the families who brought this ancient style of wine kind of back on top of mind, really. So, I mean, there are two families in particular, the Radicon family and the Gravner family, both uh, in a small village of, of Oslavia, which is basically an ethnically Slovene, but still in modern day Italy. You know, I really had to get to know those guys very well and, and, find out what had driven them to bring this style of wine back into being really from a from a kind of obscure footnote in in history and of course uh, georgia was another key part as well i i uh, i knew i had to get to georgia and ended up going there a few times so yeah it was just lots of lots of talking and listening and and traveling and collating and then trying to figure out how do i make this into a story that people will want to read yeah. I have a feeling that as we go deeper here, some of the larger plot points in that story will become clear. I have a number of follow-ups I'd like to ask on that. But before I do, before I completely derail this and just start chasing down my <laughs> little areas and points of fascination, I would love for you to provide our listeners with a working definition of orange wine, um, because I'm guessing it's not made from oranges. Uh, and uh, I would also love if you could go one step further than that, by which I mean like, okay, you're going to give us the basic definition, but are there certain production methods or grapes that are typically used for this? You know, give, give us the high level definition and then maybe work us a little bit deeper because our listeners certainly are familiar with wine and probably, you know, some more familiar than a lay audience would be, if that helps. Great. Yeah. Well, I think, um, I'll, I'll give a very simple technical definition and then maybe I'll just Put that into historical context because that's yeah. an important part of this really so the technical definition and this is as simple as i can make it is that you take white grapes um, and then you ferment them with their skins and that's the key difference because most modern white wine is fermented without the skins and if you think about it that's why it is usually so pale in color because most of the pigmentation, uh, some of those flavors and aromas that you wouldn't expect in a white wine, all of that sits in the skins. So modern white, uh, modern white wine production, you, you get rid of the skins after a few hours, really, uh, and then you go ferment the, the juice, the pulp. 
orange wine, you leave the skins in there. So you're getting this long maceration, you're extracting structure, you're extracting tannins from the skins, you're extracting all those aromas and flavors that you otherwise wouldn't be getting. And that's why you end up with a wine that is is usually um, a, a much darker hue, and it can span a huge range. Sometimes it really has an orange tint, sometimes it can be dark amber colored. Um, and often these are wines that in terms of texture, sit closer to red wines um, because they're they're getting that uh, that pickup of the the phenolic compounds, the tannins, if if you like, that are in the skins. Mm. So that's the technical decision um, definition. Culturally, uh, what's interesting and and what I gradually discovered is that this is pretty much the oldest way of work, making wine that we know about. Um, and of course, it dates back to a time when, in many parts of the world people would not have worried about separating white grape varieties from red. They just had a whole bunch of stuff in the vineyard, whatever they had, it all got thrown in together and out came wine. Um, but in the parts of the world where maybe white grape varieties were in the ascendant, they were more important. If you didn't have technology, you, know, you, you only have to go back a few hundred years, people didn't have wine presses they didn't have stainless steel tanks. They didn't have ways of keeping all this stuff cool. So you just had to basically crush the, the grapes up as best you could with your, with your feet or with a wooden pole, and then off you go and it starts fermenting. So this is why it's so interesting when we start to look at somewhere like Georgia, because in Georgia, there is archeological evidence of this style of wine uh, being made in amphoras, in clay pots perhaps as long ago as 8,000 years. Um, so really, we can say that orange wine is how wine was. It's just that somewhere along the line, basically in our industrial age, we got attached to this idea of this pale, colored, squeaky clean uh, beverage that we call white wine. Mm. And, uh, and then everybody thought, okay, the, these other wines that are darker hued, maybe a bit cloudy, you know, they're, they're primitive. That's not what we, what we should be selling. That's not what we, people want, really. And so that's how it was for, uh, for a long time. Mm. As a tech guy, I'm sure that you are familiar with the very often hazy distinction between a bug and a feature. <laughs> it seems like that is uh, a little bit at the heart of what you're referring to there. Now, you mentioned the word amphorae, which is, you know, uh, many people who've ever visited a museum that deals with, you know, Roman or Greek time periods, um, you know, in the Med in Mediterranean classical or uh, antiquity, antiquated history, have seen these, you know, kind of tallish, curvy uh, vessels that are often used to store wine. Uh, are there other names for these vessels, uh, perhaps in the Georgian tradition, or am I maybe maybe thinking of uh, another term in the uh, orange wine world here? No, you're absolutely right to um, pick me up on that. And and to be honest, I'll get into deep trouble if uh, any Georgian winemaker hears what I just said. <laughs> so I use the term amphora because that's a kind of catch-all term that people tend to hone in on for clay pots. Um, but of course, the, the Georgian term for their very specific type of clay pot is, is the quevery. Um, and the quevery is a is a, a large type of clay pot. It can hold maybe 1,000, 2,000 liters in some cases. Uh, it has a pointed bottom and it's buried in the ground as well. Um, so they're not freestanding. 
And then you have all the other variants. The uh, you know people in Spain uh, had something similar, but it's called a tinaja. In Portugal, in the south, there's a a, a Roman tradition, uh, and there they're called talias. So there's many different names, and and they're all slightly different vessels. They're slightly different shapes, slightly different traditional methods of of pottery, and and firing. And some are freestanding, some aren't. So so yes, there are there are many variants. But I mean, again. You go back a thousand years or so, and um, not everybody had access to wooden barrels. Um, there was no such thing as stainless steel. Sure, sure. And the reason why I wanted to have you speak a little bit more on that is because, you know, obviously you you started us off, you know, possibly as far back in time as eight thousand years ago. You also mentioned that probably in the early days of wine production and these. Uh, maybe we'll call them these Venice societies sort of evolving their own cultures. Uh, you mentioned that red and white grapes may have been, you know, in the same vessel, you know, you take what's in the vineyard, that's sugar, that's energy, you know, that's fermentable substrate. So we're going to use that. Um, and then over time, we have some of these branching distinctions, right? We have the, the, the queveries in the, um, the Georgian tradition and some of these other styles that you mentioned. And it might be easy to say like, well, it's just kind of the jug that they put it in, right? Recently, I had an interesting experience in the culinary realm. Uh, I started trying to learn how to make a really nice uh, cassoulet, uh, which is the, uh, you know, the, the southern <laughs> French uh, sort of, uh, you might call it a casserole, but it's made with, uh, you know, tarbe white beans and lots of rich pork and, uh, duck products. And one of the interesting things that, uh, I uncovered in my research is that the, it's called a cassoulet because down in Gascony, where this dish was, uh, originally created, they create, they make it in a clay pot called a cassoule and the cassoule is not the same shape as most of the cooking vessels that we would use in today's kitchen, uh, the, a Dutch oven, perhaps, or, you know, some other type of, you know, casserole pan. Uh, it had a much larger sort of surface area. And the thing that most people in the cassoulet tradition tried to achieve is this really hard crust at the top. And in doing this research, I realized that it just wasn't going to happen the same way from you because I didn't have something that had that kind of pointed conical bottom, almost like you were mentioning in the, the queveries. And so I had to find a way to engineer that hard crust on the top by some other method because it just was not destined for me based on the tool that I was using. And the reason why I make that point is not to say anything about Castellet, but just to point out that some of these incidental differences in culture and style that evolve over time end up having a massive impact on the end flavor of a product. Um, so is I want to use this as a way to kind of branch out into the different kind of regions of orange wine. We mentioned Georgia. Um, we mentioned that there was a perhaps a Slovenian strain kind of moving into Italy. Um, can you identify some of the key important orange wine producing regions and maybe talk about as we go some of these differences and some of the things that they try to play up flavor wise in their expressions? Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, in a way I can simplify it. I think, I mean, there are, yeah, there are traditions of clay and there are traditions of, of, of wood. 
Uh, and obviously the Georgian tradition is, is very much this tradition of clay. Uh, I think it's partly because there's a, at least one part of Georgia, the, the region of Imereti, which has this absolutely fantastic raw material. It's supposed to be the best clay in the country, if not in, 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 the, in the world. So I think it's probably natural that people realize they had this great material that they could make vessels out of. And, and indeed, the Georgian tradition is, is all based around that vessel. And the quivery, it, it takes on an almost mythical dimension, really. Uh, any Georgian winemaker will talk about it as a, as a womb for the wine. And the Georgians have this wonderful phrase where they say, wine is not made, it's born. And in fact, if you, in Georgian language, if you... Uh, if you talk about making wine, it has a negative connotation um, because th there's really this idea that you don't make wine. You you put the grapes in the quivery and then the magic happens and you just let it be until it's ready. Um, so so this is very connected with the vessel. Um, Georgians use quiveries for all kinds of other things too. Uh, some people are even buried in them. Uh, so they're they have a, a real significance in the culture as as well as affecting the winemaking and and we can talk about maybe how they affect the winemaking technically if if you want yes um, please but, okay <laughs> wasn't sure how deep you wanted me to go but um i mean the the thing with the thing with ovoid vessels ov ovoid shaped vessels for fermentation is that you get different kind of heat transfer, you get a different kind of extraction going on. You get, basically when fermentation is, is happening, as, you, as I'm sure you know, you, you get a buildup of heat and, and CO2. And ovoid egg-shaped containers seem to induce confection currents um, that, that do a kind of gentle massaging of whatever you have in there. So you get extraction, um, but it's of a different sort than you would get if you were doing it in a simple conical-shaped vessel. And I think that's why um, in Georgian culture, the you know, Georgian amber wines, orange wines, whatever you want to call them, uh, traditionally they would they would just let it sit there for six months or sometimes even longer, and it and it wouldn't over-extract um, because of the shape of the the quivery. Whereas you compare that with um, particularly the, the Central and Eastern European tradition, and, and I'll include Slovenia and the north of Italy very much in that, probably Croatia and a few other parts of the Balkans too. There, obviously, you, you, you've traditionally had massive forests all over the place, especially in the Croatian region of Slavonia. So it's the perfect place to make barrels, and that's what people always did. Uh, so there, the tradition has always been much more about barrels, usually rather large barrels, again, sort of uh, what the Italians would call botte grande, so 1,000 litres or, or maybe even bigger. And there you, you get more extraction. Um, also, of course, you have different grape varieties and different ways of making the wine. So I think that the style of the wine is, is very different. I think particularly in Western Slovenia, for example, you tend to get these more kind of massive structured orange wines than you might um somewhere a little bit further west say in austria or somewhere like that so yes of course it, it does have an effect and it's fascinating to see how all these these cultural touch points do affect the the tradition and affect uh, what people feel is is authentic or not in any given region as you were just describing all of those cultural differences and you almost might 
refer to them as cultural terroirs because the clay, the wood, those are parts of the land. You know, those those are parts of the indigenous geography where the people were were growing these grapes. So it makes sense. You know, it, it is kind of the tradition of what grows together goes together, right? Grapes grow near where there's clay, they go in the clay. Grapes grow in where there's woods, they go in the wood barrels. Exactly. This, this mm. is, this is, um, you know, makes sense to me. But what I was, what really clicked for me as you were describing that, and I was trying to create a, a map of these regions and follow you through this map in my mind was, you're right. I, I haven't really been thinking about the fact that there are so many different white grape varietals involved here. Of course, we're talking about these different vessels where they're fermented and then aged. Uh, we're talking about um, you know different different cultures, obviously. But the grape varieties is something that just clicked to me, and and suddenly I was imagining myself tasting you know a really delicate Pinot Noir from you know, uh, some, you know, uh, uh, you know, a region in Burgundy uh, and comparing that to some big boned Pinotage from South Africa or some, you know, really peppery Malbec from Argentina or something like that. And having these three red wine experiences be so vastly different, that doesn't strike me as strange. But all of a sudden we turn the conversation to white grapes and it seems very foreign to me. And I, I had almost like this sense of anxiety, like the landscape all, all of a sudden kind of dropped out from under me. Um, how, when you were researching Amber Revolution, did you try to understand the impact that the grape varietals had on the orange wine? Well, it, it kind of, uh, it grabbed me by the throat and, and, and led me to the story actually, um, because one of the first places that I really went deep into for my research was was uh, Friuli Collio, this this very you know far northeastern bit touching Slovenia and in fact it's it's a cross-border region really it's uh, it, it's it's called Collio which means hills in Italian it's called uh, Burda uh, which means hills in Slovene uh, it's one region it's just that uh, unfortunately after two world wars there's a there's a nation border in the way um, but in that region, there's a grape variety with at least 1,200 years of history uh, called, in Italian, Ribola Gialla, and in Slovene, Rebula. Um, and this variety is very interesting. Clearly, it's well-suited to the area. It's well-suited to the climate. And this is, this is ultimately where you find particular grape varieties in particular places. You know, it's because they're, um, they tolerate the climate. They, they've survived, basically, over many centuries or even millennia. Um, but the thing about Ribola Jala is that it has incredibly thick skins. It's a white grape variety, but with super thick skins. And one of the problems that uh, the winemakers in those regions started telling me is that the reason their grandfathers or, the, or their grandparents used to uh, often end up doing skin contact using the skins uh, for these wines was because you couldn't actually press those grapes. Uh, if you had a, an old fashioned screw press, uh, it would jam the press because the skins were so thick. So often people would end up just leaving the grapes sat there for a week uh, until they'd softened enough that they could actually press them. And of course, after a week, you're going to have ferment fermentation. Um, so in a way, looking at this, this very particular grape variety and its sort of slightly unique properties um, solved the, the key to me of, of why 
orange wine was always a thing in those regions. It started to make sense. Um, so that was that was a key part of the of the puzzle, I think. And I think similarly in, in Georgia as well. I mean, they in Georgia there are grape varieties that you really don't find anywhere else, and they are just so beautiful when you use the skins. Uh, and I'm I'm talking about maybe you know the classic varieties uh, for Georgia like uh, Cazzitelli or Tsane or Kisi. Um, they're they're good enough varieties if you if you make them into a Western style white wine, but they're far more exciting when you use the skins. So it makes perfect sense, really, um, that people would do that. I think uh, just one other thing to add as well, which I've, I forgot. Um, I, I, I always like to hate on Ribola Jala a little bit uh, because it's a terrifically dull grape if you don't use the skins. Um, the, the flesh and the juice really doesn't have a, a strong character. You know, you talk about varieties like um, Sauvignon Blanc or Muscat. They have very readily identifiable fruit profiles they have a character that people can latch onto ripola doesn't have any of that in its juice it's rather neutral it just has acidity and and that's about it really but you use the skins and it's a different matter that's where all the flavor of that grape variety is uh, and then it becomes majestic it becomes regal it becomes complex honeyed um, so to me it's it's not using the skins not making an orange wine out of ribola it's like Sasha Radicon once said to me, it's like you would take the, the, the Merlot from Chateau Petrus in, uh, in Pomerol and just make a simple rosé from it. That's What's a the point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. I, I, I'm glad that you uh, came in with that metaphor because I was struggling. I was, I was trying to identify like something in the culinary space where I could, I could kind of draw a parallel, but that that's fascinating. Uh, do, do you find that in general, now I imagine as in anything, there are plenty of exceptions to any rule, but in general, do you find that most orange wine is made using white grapes that tend to have those thicker skins? Um, not necessarily. No. I mean, I think especially now, especially now that the category has broadened so much. Um, maybe that is, maybe that's true in history. Yeah, maybe we can say that. Um, but certainly, I mean, it, it has a great deal of worth, even with thinner skins. Mm. Um, I think that's, that's the thing. It's, there is such a multiplicity of styles in the orange wine category uh, with so many great varieties. I mean, for example, a, Sure, grapes with thick skins give you give you something complex, something structured, something with a lot of texture. But there's more magic that this this technique of making wine can uh, can achieve as well. And uh, I also learned fairly early on the aromatic grape varieties, so like Gewürztraminer or all the the different types of Muscat, um, are absolutely fantastic uh, when they're fermented with their skins because you you get a kind of concentration of those aromatics. But you get a, a balancing effect um, by the fact that suddenly there's texture and there's structure, where you know you can have a. We've probably all had that experience of a flabby Gewürztraminer that just smells like you know grandma's attic, uh, and it's too much. You know, it's too floral. It's over the top, and there's nothing to nothing to offset it. But when you have more texture, uh, then it's it's a different matter. So I think aromatic varieties can also perform very well. I think the only the only thing really that I think is key is 
having having some freshness some acidity because often these wines are um, a little bit more complex a little bit more full-bodied than maybe some simpler white wine styles so if you start to lose freshness then they can they can be a bit heavy they can be a bit wearing Mm. i would say well, I'm glad that you brought up acidity, and it's also interesting that you mentioned uh, the Muscat and the Gewürztraminer because uh, where my mind immediately goes after those two would be sort of rounding that trio out with a Riesling, you know, sort of another right. uh, highly aromatic, but uh, a grape variety where the makers have traditionally in the 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 3M Rivers region of the Marne, Meuse, and Moselle have had a great deal of leeway to play with different levels of residual sugar. So since we're speaking about acid, sugar, flabbiness, intensity, do you find the same sort of range of sweetnesses and acidities in orange wine that you might find in, for example, uh, a the Riesling category where you can go from very dry and you know, almost bracing to something that is a full-on trocken beer in Auschlese dessert wine? Usually not, uh, and th- there's a good reason for that. Uh, so when we when we talk about orange wine, because we're talking about, uh, if you like, a, an ancestral style, a traditional style, most of the winemakers who are willed to make it want to make it in a hands-off traditional way. Uh, so they, they don't control the fermentation. They let it do whatever it wants. And when you include skins, uh, which you do to make an orange wine, um, there's a much better chance that you will ferment every last bit of sugar away. You know, white grapes uh, without skins to make a white wine, this is occasionally where winemakers might run into trouble and get a stuck fermentation and end up with some some residual sugar in the wine. And that's also when people might decide to step in and intervene with technology or additions but with orange wine because the the skins are there providing uh, a lot more yeast cultures uh, typically you will get a more reliable ferment and and you will get all the way to dryness pretty much every time so orange wine i'd say 99.99 percent of the time means dry wine Mm. and i imagine in this respect the structure the dryness as you mentioned the benevolent addition in most cases of a little bit of acidity to bring it to life would make orange wine incredibly food friendly would that be accurate um, i think it'd be very accurate yeah and i think um that's certainly one of the things that i absolutely adore about these wines because to me you've you've got all bases covered uh, you've got some of the textures and structures that we all that we all love in in red wine you know some tannins to kind of clean the mouth if you've got a fatty piece of of meat or or dairy or or what i'm trying to think of a vegan alternative but i um sorry sorry vegans <laughs> um but um uh, or uh, but simultaneously you've got this feeling of freshness and acidity that we tend to associate more classically with white wine so to me you've got the, the best points of both styles in in one package and i've heard so many sommeliers say you know this is this is the get out of jail free card you know when you've got the table with an irreconcilable combination of dishes um this is what you can do This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. I've been a customer for about a year now, and I can say without hesitation that the delivery of frozen farm fresh meat that I received from Adam and his team 
makes me do a little happy dance every month. Not only does Near Country offer grass-fed beef and pasture-raised pork, but they also have an awesome selection of chicken and seafood. And the best part is it's all local and it's all sustainably farmed and harvested. You can customize every order or simply leave the selection in their capable hands like I do. Near Country even offers fun add-ons like bones for soups and stocks, as well as special holiday offerings like turkeys, brisket, and more. If you live in the Mid-Atlantic, that's D.C., Maryland, or Virginia, and you're sick of the same bland selection at the grocery store, or you're looking to drastically improve the quality of the protein in your diet, Near Country Provisions has you covered. Head over to nearcountry.com and enter the code BARCART, all one word, when you sign up for your subscription to receive two free pounds of bacon or ground beef in your first delivery. That's BARCART, B-A-R-C-A-R-T, all one word, at checkout. This is easily one of the biggest quality of life improvements I've made in the last year or two, so I hope you'll give Near Country Provisions a shot and let me know what you think. Now, back to the show. I've also found, interestingly, that foods that traditionally are a nightmare to pair with wine, such as very spicy cuisine, Mm -hmm. some Asian cuisines, very piquant, you know, very, very strong flavors that don't always combine with classic wine styles. Again, you take something like a a skin fermented muscat, a a muscat made as a dry orange wine, and, and it just works without needing to think. I bet. I bet that I love that get out of free, uh, get out of jail free metaphor. Um, <laughs> I have a feeling that we might, we may, we may not, but I'm, I'm hoping we'll have time to get back to, you know, some of the, you mentioned some technological interventions uh, a moment ago. You mentioned the sort of get out of jail free card. Um, now that orange wine is caught on, I, I have a feeling that there are a few things being done in the space that may not be precisely in the spirit of what these original kind of traditional makers who uh, are very non-interventionist uh, might be comfortable with. So we may have time to return to that. But what I'd like to do uh, instead right now is to pose to you a, a bit of a thought experiment and see what you think about it, because orange wine is very much in vogue right now. Obviously, the pandemic had a bit of an interruption. Uh, Here in the US, we don't have a very strong orange wine tradition. We have some domestic makers who are playing around with it, but generally we're we're importing these orange wines and and COVID has, has not been friendly to us in that respect. So I've definitely seen less buzz around orange wine here in the U.S. than perhaps there was right before the pandemic kicked off in earnest. There was a lot of talk about skin contact and all this stuff, and it has definitely, you know, kind of been reduced to a simmer from what was sort of a frantic boil beforehand. But assuming that we will have the opportunity to kind of finally return to what we were obsessed with right before things got weird, let's imagine that one of our listeners uh, wanted to pick up a bottle of orange wine and they walked into a wine shop or a liquor store that had an entire shelf dedicated to orange wine. Certainly, probably something that you're not going to encounter, but this is a thought experiment. So let's imagine there's a whole wall dedicated to orange wine, just like there is dedicated to red wines and white wines in most uh, traditional wine shops. If that was the case in this imaginary scenario, how would you think that that would be organized? And what would this person who's walking up to this wall of orange wines 
and trying to walk away with the one bottle that is going to be excellent for the, the meal preparation that they're trying to do, for example, how would they go about locating the bottle that's right for them in this giant selection? I mean, in a way, I would say that it's no different to any other wine style. And by the way, I do know wine shops and restaurants where this is not only something in your imagination. There, there are there are enough places now uh, that take orange wines seriously enough as a category that you can have that choice. And I think where where the wine shop has done their curation properly, uh, they'll have those wines organized uh, and they'll maybe start by saying, okay, these are the lighter orange wines, you know, maybe fresher, maybe less, less structure, less tannins. These are the heavier ones. So you can immediately hone in on, on that. You can say, you know, do I want a light wine or, or a, a heavier, more complex wine for whatever I'm going to be pairing it with tonight? I think then, of course, you can, you can go by things like country and grape variety. These usually provide helpful clues. And I think it's it's just like, uh, you know, your analogy about uh, uh, Pinot Noir, lighter Pinot Noirs or heavier Pinotages. You can apply that logic to orange wine as well, if you um, either if you've got a bit of experience with them or if the the, uh, the assistant in, in the shop knows what they're talking about. And it's to me, that's no different than anything else. You know, if you like wine, you probably know that a, a Napa Cab or a or a, a Bordeaux red wine is going to give you something heavier, maybe a bit more intellectual, whereas you know a, a, a Cabernet Franc from the Loire or a, a, maybe a, a Pinot Noir from Burgundy might give you something that feels a little bit lighter, more playful, more ethereal. You know these aren't givens, but they're they're certainly guidelines. An orange wine to me is no different. You know once you get to know. Um, so the, the the stylistics, you know, okay, Georgian wines from the east of Georgia, from Kacheti, are traditionally big, bold, and structured, and you need to like tannins. Um, Slovenia also, the Western Slovenia the wines tend to be a little bit more full-bodied, riper, heavier. Um, but if you go somewhere like Austria, Burgenland, there, there's a really interesting tradition developing for very fruit forward orange styles very kind of charming very youthful and, and often very fresh tasting so i think these are things that people can hone in on you can hone in on a favorite grape variety you know sauvignon blanc is is amazing with skin contact and there are a ton of them being made now in, in um styria in austria for example or a few other places and i think yeah beyond that there are all the other all the other things that you you either you either know or you ask or you look at the bottle. I mean, I personally, if I don't know a wine, the clues that I look at is what's the alcohol percentage. You know, is this going to be a ripe wine? Is it a fourteen point five percent slammer or is it a eleven point five percent something I can neck half the bottle without feeling guilty? Um, so I'd look at that. I would try to find out if it's been aged in oak or not, or you know, or maybe amphora. So all of these would give some clue maybe to the style um but at the end of the day um there, there's no um there's no replacement for experimentation so some things you've just got to take a chance take a recommendation or pick something randomly and see what happens really right and this serendipity. is serendipity <laughs> well, there's there's serendipity and there's also the uh, the case to be made for uh, making friends with uh, the folks who are, are working at your local wine shop. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and of course, restaurants with good sommeliers is is another perfect environment. You might be lucky to score a glass of something and without having to commit to a bottle. 
so that's also a, a great place for discovery. Sure, sure. As you have taken us through some of the history, culture, and geography of orange wine, one of the best spirits parallels that I think I can draw is the agave space in that there are so many different varietals that can be used for these, you know, artisan mezcals and ricias and sotols and all these, all these different varieties of agave experience that we have. They're so very often produced using non-interventionist fermentation practices. There's a lot of local terroir and culture that go into it. The shapes of the stills are very different in kind of the same way that the shapes of these fermenters uh, are, are a little bit uh, different and can vary from place to place and culture to culture. So I see a lot of parallels between the orange wine world and the artisanal agave world. Obviously, some of the big brands have gone in and, and industrialized a lot of these over the, the last decade or so. But in the artisan world of craft agave, very, very, uh, very many parallels that I'm able to draw. So if anybody listening is more of a spirits drinker who's trying to develop a wine hobby, you might think about in the metaphor that we just gave of this entire shelf of orange wines, you might think of that almost as if you had access to all of these different artisan agave makers. Some of the same principles apply, but it does seem to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, it seems like the hand of the maker is ultimately going to be one of the things that has the greatest impact here. Is is that accurate? I, I think the hand of the maker is may still be the biggest part, yes. But um, but I would say that the the tradition in a particular place still carries a lot of weight too. And and certainly, I mean, I, particularly thinking about Slovenia and Georgia, and there are many other countries, actually many regions of Italy as well, that there is still a um, sometimes quite a surprising adherence to tradition. Mm. And you know the winemaker has the tools, has the power to take it in a different direction. But often there there is this this thing, you know, we get we get into rather nebulous words like typicity or tradition or integrity. But these things do count for something. Uh, and I think they they leave their their mark on the wine as well. For sure. And, and that also is, is a big thing in the spirit space uh, here in the U.S., especially the category of American single malts, which is an emerging category. Um, you know, we don't have the peat that they do in Scotland. We don't right. have the barley mm -hmm. that they have there. And, and yet we're trying to do something similar. And the question is, do we want to kind of create a completely different category that is as different from, you know, a, a Scottish single malt as, you know, the uh, the. Argentinian Malbec is from, you know, something that was, you know, grown on, on the continent in Europe, or do we want to kind of try and convert some of these single malt drinkers with something that might be a little familiar to them, um, which kind of may speak to some of the trends that I'd like to kind of wrap up the main portion of the interview here. But before, before we do, I want to speak about your book, Amber Revolution, as a tool for people who want to learn more about orange wine. You've given us a lot of great basics, but my hope is that having heard our conversation thus far, people might be interested in learning about all of those characters, right? The protagonists, you called them earlier. So if some of our listeners were to pick up Amber Revolution, how would you recommend 
using that as a tool to get a little bit more into orange wine or how, are there any like uh, any any tips and tricks for using that as a guide to kind of fuel your new orange wine obsession um absolutely so the book is very much uh, divided into two parts um the most important part is is a story really and when when i set out to write this book i, I powerfully did not want to write a, a dry textbook i my my goal that I had in my mind is I wanted to write a book that you want to take to bed and read and you know cuddle up with basically, so I wrote it um, much more like a, a novel. So the main part of the book um, that takes us you know it takes us through my experience first and then Italy, Slovenia, and then Georgia, hones in on, on a few main characters and goes quite deep into their personal histories. So the idea is that it's it's a fun read. It's it's a fairly easy read. Um, it's not bogged down with technical detail. I, I just want to get you excited really about this, and I want to get you excited in the same way that I was excited when I could feel this 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 weight of of history and culture on these wines. And so the idea is to communicate that. The second part of the book, which is much smaller, is a kind of gazetteer of producers around the world that you can dip into. So that's the kind of um, the reference part, if you like. And in the first edition, that was 180 winemakers in 20 odd countries. In the, uh, the second edition, which is now, uh, um nice. it is shot up to uh 230 odd producers and i i ended up adding countries like japan and greece and the uk um so i think there are 32 countries now represented so almost anywhere you are in the world uh you can you can open the book and you can probably find some references for wines that are reasonably readily available and maybe even wineries where you can jump in the car and go and visit them. What really appeals to me about the structure of Amber Revolution is that it very much is in that sense, a travelogue, right? You go through the first part of the book, which is a travelogue, you know, kind of authored by you and your lived experiences. And then you've got the kind of resource in the back, which allows you to plan future travel, perhaps, exactly. um, yeah. uh, whether that travel is uh, via a, a bottle that you pick up at the liquor store and transports your palate to a different place or, or whether you want to physically go and visit some of these places. So I love that for anybody who has read By the Smoke and the Smell by Thad Vogler, which is a much more sort of um, kind of scattered memoirs of visiting different places and different spirits. This, this kind of strikes me as a more focused kind of singular, uh, singular product, but going through many different regions. So, uh, those two, you know, the, your, your book and, and by the smoke and the smell seem to share a, a, a little, uh, common strand of DNA in that respect. Um, nice. so going to trends really quickly, are there any trends that you see emerging, especially considering the historical context that we're living in right now with the pandemic, as we're emerging from this, are there any trends that people might want to keep their eyes open for in the world of orange wine? I think, I think the, the only trend is that it's, it's just widening and broadening all the time. Uh, it's, it's extraordinary actually. I mean, I, I didn't witness this moment because 20 years ago, I didn't know what orange wine was and I'd never tasted one. But 20 years ago, the pioneers that brought this winemaking idea 
back into a bottle. And I'm talking about people like Joschka Gravner and Stenko Radikon in uh, Italy. Um, they were absolutely panned for what they were doing. Um, they had wine sent back to them. They were told that they were madmen. Uh, they didn't know what they were doing. This, this, it absolutely was not accepted by the, um, you know, the winerati, if we can call it that. Whereas 10 years later, um, they managed to get the things moving. They managed to convince their, their customers and they managed to convince people around the world that this, this is a style worth taking seriously. This is something that you can consider as fine wine. Now, here we are, yeah, 20, 25, 30 years later, um, I think almost every winemaker in the world knows that this is an option. It, it's like winemakers just got another another paintbrush to paint with, another color on the, on the color palette, really. Um, and winemakers love to play. And I think that's why we've, we've gradually seen this idea sort of trickle down into every wine region, every winemaking country in the world. So you have places like Australia and New Zealand that have, they don't have the weight of tradition on their shoulders like we do here in Europe, a little bit the same in the US. So it's a playground. Um, and what's interesting about that is that we haven't just seen a profusion of orange wine and of acceptance of the technique and that it can make something tasty and fun. We've also seen some very smart winemakers realize that it's not all or nothing. You can do blends. You can part skin ferment. You can have a half orange wine, half white wine. You know, the, it, it doesn't have to be one thing or the other. So we're now seeing all kinds of hybrids. We're seeing people looking at it just as another tool in the toolbox uh, that you can use when it makes sense and play with all you want. Yeah. I love how flexible orange wine can be in that respect, right? You have the people who follow the deep traditions and then the people who use it as just this, uh, you know, a, a tool in the toolkit, as, as you mentioned. Um, so yeah, I, I, I love the, I love the notion of widening as it refers to the category of orange wines. One of my favorite collections of poetry is, is called The Widening Spell of the Leaves by a, a poet named Larry Levison. And to me, what we're talking about right now is the widening spell of the grapes, the widening spell of skin <laughs> contact. So wherever you are, I hope that you are able to uh, find a bottle or find a producer uh, who can, you know, cast that spell on you. Um, certainly it's a category that I've only just begun to explore. I haven't had too, too many experiences with orange wine. And, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this interview is to give myself a little bit more of an excuse to, uh, <laughs> to, to further my own education nice. and my own palate. <laughs> right. Um, so, um, I don't want to conclude here and jump into the lightning round before I, let you speak a little bit more about your most recent project. Earlier on, you were speaking about wooden paddles and more importantly, the human appendages at the bottoms of our legs. Uh, so using that as a prompt, what is your most recent project? Nice link, yeah. So this is this is the, uh, the latest book that I've published together with my good friend and uh, collaborator, Ryan Opas. And it's, it's a similar idea to the, it, it's a book called Foot Trodden, um, Portugal and the, wine, and the Wines That Time Forgot. And how this book happened was basically Ryan worked with me as the photographer on Amber Revolution. And while we were traveling together and uh, doing all the research for Amber Revolution, we started talking about Portugal, which is Ryan's adopted home. He's originally from Minnesota. And 
we both felt that there were strong parallels. For, for me, uh, orange wine, uh, when I started first researching it and enjoying the wines, which is now more than 10 years ago, it was very much the underdog. It was something that was poo-pooed, not taken seriously, and people said all, all kinds of rubbish about it. And I felt that Portugal, unfortunately, is a little bit the same. It's, it's a little bit of the underdog in, amongst this cluster of classic European wine countries. Um, it doesn't get the credit that it deserves. People don't explore it as deeply um, as they might. And so we felt, you know, maybe we can do a similar book to Amber Revolution, but tackling Portugal and what we have seen as a real renaissance of exciting wine, of artisanal and often often natural wine, and orange wines as well, by the way, being made in Portugal. They have their own special word for the style, which is called Coutimento. So, so that was the genesis of this, this second book, really. So it, it's different because it's about one country, um, but in a way it's a similar concept. It's a travelogue. It's the personal histories of people that we think are interesting and communicate something about Portuguese culture. So again, it's, it's, just, it's a book that we hope will connect people with Portugal, get them excited about it and persuade them to, to go out and hunt down a bottle and experiment. And drink something tasty. Sure. And I, I think that's a, another really valuable contribution because so much of the, the grape-related focus in Portugal tends to fall on port and uh, to, unfortunately, the mass market Vinho Verdes that, that, we, that, that get exported. And there's nothing wrong with a you know, sub $10 bottle of Vinho Verde that, that you bring to a, a cookout. And it's, it's sort of a, a throwaway acid bomb that makes lots of people moderately happy, but doesn't, you know, make anyone think twice. But obviously, it's another super old wine tradition, right? It, it, it is. And that's, that's the thing with Portugal. I mean, my God, there is history and, and culture and such an amazing plethora of unique grape varieties. Again, grape varieties you don't find anywhere else. Traditions like the foot treading, which is still far more common in Portugal than, than you might suppose. So it, to us, it's a treasure trove for the, the wine curious consumer. Uh, and, and it just makes no sense to us that people don't delve into it more than they currently do. You know, and as you, you were saying about uh, Vinved, it's a little bit like the U.S. is pigeonholed as, oh, the U.S., white, you know, American wine is uh, hearty burgundy. It's two buck chuck. And that's it. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, do, do you think that the uh, the foot treading is, is um, you know, part of the secret sauce that, that uh, creates the uh, Portuguese success in football and that they, that they spend so much time <laughs> foot treading that they, you know, they, they end up developing massive quads and hamstrings? A good point, actually. I've never thought about that. Unfortunately, I think my girlfriend knows more about football than I do, so it's 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 not one of my passions. So I can't say. But well, Simon, this has been a, a fantastic conversation. Uh, I think it's it puts us at the perfect spot because it's it's a perfect primer for orange wine, but it only leaves you hungering for the book, the travelogue, the, uh, the, the romance of the protagonist that much more. So I hope that, uh, that everyone listening will, um, look to pick up Amber revolution. Uh, is there anywhere that you would like to send people first and foremost to purchase this in, in a place where it might uh, benefit you most? Well, I, I would say that if, if you're in the States, if you're in North America, uh, then in, if possible, you know, don't, don't buy it from, uh, 
the rainforest retailer. Uh, it would be much nicer if you sort out your independent bookshop or you can also buy it direct from the distributor in the US, which is interlinkbooks.com. And I believe, uh, I think Indie Books, I forget what that site's called. So th there's enough places to buy it without uh, giving your money to someone who just wants to uh, you know, catapult themselves into space. So sure, sure. So we, we'll uh, <laughs> we'll be sure to have the uh, the the do good links over on the show notes page, yeah. <laughs> modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. Uh, but Simon, uh, you ready to jump into the lightning round? Let's do it. All right. Uh, first question. Generally, this is a spirits and cocktail podcast. Uh, do you ever find yourself uh, drinking spirits and cocktails? And if you do, uh, what is what is your favorite? I absolutely do. And I have a couple of, we, we already mentioned the Negroni. I love a good mm. Negroni made with a nice uh, artisanal Amaro. I'm partial to a gin and tonic and we have an amazing selection of craft gins uh, here now. I have a dirty secret as well. And probably uh, half the listeners are going to hate me for this, but I love a well-made espresso martini. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I make them myself. I make them at home as well. <laughs> well, this is great. This is, let, let's get into it. What constitutes for Simon Wolf a well-made espresso martini? It's all about the sweetness. And I would say 99% of the time when I have an espresso martini in a bar, it's too sweet. Mm. And I've experimented with it at home and I'm really looking at a quarter of a teaspoon of of sugar syrup per cocktail. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's it. And what are the other ingredients that you're using? Just for I think everyone's familiar with the espresso martini as the, you know, kind of shaken brown, maybe a little bit of uh foam on the top with the, you know, the little espresso bean garnish, but what what particular um ingredients are you using besides the sugar syrup for your rendition? Um, so I, so I have an espresso machine at home. I have a semi-automatic, um, so, so I make a quality espresso shot and I do think a freshly made espresso shot, uh, is really what it has to be. Um, I'm a bit traditional, so I do tend to use Kahlua, uh, which I think was the original recipe and then, uh, you know, a, a nice, a, a neutral vodka basically. Uh, and then as I said, just a tiny, tiny speck of sugar spirit syrup and not um, you know, whatever most recipes have and whatever most bartenders seem to to use because it's just far too sweet. For sure. For sure. Well, it seems like the espresso martini is something that we may need to dedicate a full episode. On, <laughs> uh, in Maybe the there's a book in there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Wouldn't that be a fun way for me to enter the, uh, enter the literary ranks as the espresso martini guy? Uh, <laughs> all right. Next question in this lightning round. Uh, what's a seemingly small or idiosyncratic occurrence that always makes your day? Oh, uh, <laughs> Um, it kind of links to the last answer, actually. I'm a, I am a sucker for a perfectly made coffee. Um, and I do, I love to take a moment in my day and just sit with a, a really well pulled shot. Mm. And that's why, you know, I, I ended up buying my own machine actually, because I just thought, you know, this, and actually I, I come down in the morning and I look at this kind of gleaming chrome kind of thing and it makes me happy. Mm. <laughs> So, I mean, I, I don't have a car. I've never owned a car. So I have an espresso machine instead. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, if, if you could have a glass of wine with anyone in the world, past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you enjoy with that person? Just kind of paint us your imaginary picture. 
Yeah, I thought about this actually. It's, it's a great question. And I actually, it would be my mom. And the reason it would be my mom is that uh, she died uh, far too early. She died in uh, 2009. Mm. And she she didn't get to experience my wine adventure. Mm. And she was a person who got me excited about wine from a very early age. Um, she wasn't an expert. She wasn't a connoisseur. But she was well-educated. And she just, in her own very humble, very unpretentious way, uh, she she just provided me with some cues and demonstrated to me that wine is something varied and, and beautiful and well worth taking the time. Um, and then kind of gradually as I got older, the tables were turned instead of her uh, telling me about wine and saying, this is this wine and this is why it tastes like that. It was me bringing bottles home and saying, hey, mom, I bought a bottle of this or have you ever had this? Um, but she never experienced that point. She died before I really got deep into it. Mm. Um, she, I think she would have uh, she would have had so much fun uh, seeing me write about it. Uh, and what I would have loved to have introduced her to is two things actually. I would take her to somewhere beautiful in Italy. Um, she was an outstanding cook, and she loved cooking Mediterranean food. That was her go-to. Uh, she did it exceptionally well, despite never having been to Italy, never having been to Spain never having been to Greece. So I would take her preferably to a, a beautiful Mediterranean island. She was a rather quiet person, so it would have to be somewhere nice and peaceful. We'd sit uh, and I'd open a bottle of probably of an orange wine, certainly something natural and cloudy, uh, which is something she never got to experience. Uh, and, and that's what we'd enjoy. Beautiful. Yeah, there's there's something to be said, especially in the wine world, where there's uh, such a, a weight of, I guess, what you might call snobbery, right? right? You mentioned the, the winerati earlier. There, there's so such a great weight of that uh, looming over the entire culture of wine that it seems like when you find somebody who is that true wine Jedi, right? Somebody who's not a snob, but they are a Jedi. They can kind of point you in the right direction. It seems like for you, your mom was somebody who, you know, kind of started you off with those first few cues and recommendations that eventually grew into, you know, what resulted in uh, the two wonderful books that you were able to share with us today. So what better way than to, uh, to, to share that back with her? That's a really beautiful, beautifully painted picture. And uh, what was, what was your favorite Mediterranean dish that your mother would make you when you were young? She she did amazing things with a dish which has been much massacred, uh, which is a ratatouille. Ah. Um, I mean, she grew all her own vegetables in the garden, and that made a difference. She she could also make a, an extraordinary pizza. Yeah, this <laughs> was really something. <laughs> and two two uh, also two dishes that happen to be extremely wine friendly. Exactly. Well, so so the last question I have for you, Simon. And as somebody who's traveled as widely as you have and has sampled as many different varieties and learned about them as you have, I imagine that you'll have an answer. Uh, it's uh, Do you have any uh, potentially controversial uh, views in the wine world? I think just that I think um, there is an awful lot of ball talked about things like wine and food matching or how you're supposed to age wine. Um, there's an awful lot of... of yeah, kind of received wisdom about some of these little ceremonies, which I think mostly is just unhelpful rubbish. Uh, and all we need to do really is pull the cork and enjoy. 
I love it. Pull the cork and enjoy. I couldn't think of a better way to wrap up this interview. Simon, thank you. I've learned a lot. Uh, I know that it's just the tip of the iceberg for me, and I'm sure that it is also just the tip of the iceberg for our listeners. Uh, So could you just give us a way to connect with you or with, you know, to be able to follow the books and your wine adventures in the digital or social media space before we sign off here? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'd say uh, Instagram is a place where you'll find me quite easily. Uh, Simon J. Wolf. Um, I do occasionally pop up on Twitter and my own website, themorningclaret.com is a, is a good place to see uh, what I've been dipping into. And if you want to read a bit more, then there's, there's always new stuff going up there. Excellent. Well, as I mentioned, we'll have links to all of this and more over on the show notes page, modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. We have two books that you now have homework to go out, pick up, <laughs> enjoy. We have Amber Revolution, which is what we were primarily speaking about today. And we have Foot Trodden. Is Foot Trodden officially on the market yet? Oh, yes, yes. It was published uh, last November in the States. Okay, great. So both of them are on shelves waiting for you. Simon, thank you so much for being a guest right here on the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. Thank you so much, Eric. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was produced by Grace Weinswig with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, orange wine and espresso martini insights courtesy of Simon Wolf, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2022.